Yes, welcome back to How Did I Get Here, uh, another episode where today we're going to be talking to an award-nominated fiction writer, correspondent, journalist, he's a former teacher, speech writer, he's been a com- columnist, advisor, and he's now chief correspondent and associate editor for the Saturday paper, Martin Mackenzie Murray. Martin, thank you for joining me today. G'day, Charlie. So we'll get right into it. You know, as I just mentioned, you've trodden down a lot of different career paths. How would you describe yourself? How would I describe myself? Jeez. Um, well, that's a larger question. Let me, let me stick to the <laughs> career, um, which I can define as um, one long act of like desperate improvisation. Um, <laughs> I studied, uh, like yourself, I've just learned at Curtin University, um, studied journalism there. So that was an early love, although, I, no, I lie actually. The reason I went into J school, if we go back all the way there, 99, I matriculate, Curtin University in Perth. And I had more or less just two obsessions. It was football and music. And I had dreamed of a professional soccer career, was far from good enough to fulfill that. And so I thought perhaps sports journalism might be a decent substitute. Um, barely scraped into university, um, but I'm very glad I did because it was quite transformative and I think it kind of awoke a lot of latent passions and abilities um, and my interests grew much more expansive than, than music and, and English football. <clears throat> um, but after that, I kind of, I wandered in the in the wilderness, Charlie. I couldn't I was very anxious about my failures to sort of break into a, a career. Um, and so I taught overseas um, in South Korea, which was kind of formative in its own way. Um, I applied for a cadetship at the ABC. Um, I got as far as an interview, but that was kind of catastrophic. And I think I was um, verbose and self-regarding um, and also really ignorant. It's an awful kind of repugnant combination to have that self-regard and ignorance at the same time. Um, and so politics was the thing that came after that. Um, community radio um, helped. I went to work for, as a kind of very lowly and peripheral speechwriter for the Western Australian uh, Premier and was a campaign manager. Um, we lost what was then thought of as an unlosable election in 2008. Um, and so subsequently I lost my job and that compelled my move to Canberra where I continued working um, as a speechwriter, albeit governmental. So like the journalism came quite late, Charlie, mm. quite, quite late amongst all of these kind of improvisations. Looking back at your uni days, you know, what kind of student were you? A terrible one. <laughs> <laughs> a terrible one. Um, I think my grade average was... 65, 66 or something was terrible. But, but, there's a huge but. And I, I think about this quite often. Um, university really woke me up and it exposed me. I thought about this a lot during lockdown and, and the students, um, you may have been affected similarly. Um, all the, the huge numbers of students that were deprived of that campus life. Um, and so whilst in the classroom I wasn't terribly good, again there was this mixture of kind of arrogance and, and ignorance and, and, a, and a lack of application, I didn't want for passion. 
And so what university did was to expose me to kind of like-minded people, um, now lifelong friends. It excited a lot of cultural interests, intellectual interests. Um, and I also started writing in earnest for the student newspaper there, um, Brock, Brock Magazine, um, which I'm, I, I hope I'm not corrected on this, but I don't think any of my writing survives, which is <laughs> wonderful. It is, it is so good that that work is not on the public record. We'll have um, to see if we can find it. <laughs> oh, please, please don't. Please don't. Um, but that was thrilling. And that, that invited me um, to, the, to the thrill of the byline. And at Grok Magazine, we couldn't, we were always earnestly kind of trying to recruit writers, but we never, ever, ever could. And it was just a handful of us typically writing the whole thing. Um, which would have been embarrassing. So we kind of um, disguised that fact by the use of a lot of creative pseudonyms. Um, but it meant writing on politics, culture, um, album reviews, long features. Um, that was thrilling. And so university exposed me to these people that turned me on to, to other things, and literature especially. Um, and the student magazine kind of got me started in a way. Hmm. I mentioned earlier, of course, you, you've written as journalist, but you've also written as a fiction writer. Um, mm. You know, uh, where did this love of writing come from for you? I don't know. I really don't. Um, but it's always been there. Um, when I say university kind of awoke latent stuff, there was a fallow period, which was the five years of high school, where <laughs> I was more or less a middling student um, and jock. Um, but... Before that, in primary school, I, I would write copiously. Um, I was in debating teams. I was verbose. Um, high school, sort of, I don't know, it, it, it all went to die. But then it was beautifully revived in university. Um, so the writing, I, you know, I, I don't... There's a lot of self-regard and kind of, I don't know, icky glorification of the act of writing, I, which kind of embarrasses me. Um, all I can say is that I, I had it from a very young age and I've never really wanted to do anything else. I remember myself at that young age, you know, when I was writing for university papers, freelancing and stuff, I always thought I wanted to impersonate, you know, my writing heroes. Was there any heroes, uh, inspirations for you during that time? Yeah, well, so <laughs> there's a story, I hope it's not apocryphal. Um, I think it involves James Baldwin, and Norman Mailer, two great American writers. Um, and I think Baldwin was giving a, was teaching creative writing at a US university and he invited Mailer to come and speak to the class. And Baldwin privately to Mailer um, expressed exasperation that his students were routinely turning in gruesome kind of plagiarizations of Ernest Hemingway it was very popular at the time. Mm. And Mailer said, and maybe I've got the two the wrong way around, but Mailer said, I can forgive that because it show, it's, it's evidence of their passionate commitment to this author. It means that they're reading. Um, and hopefully in time, they will lessen that kind of icky dependency upon their hero and start developing their own voice. And it's very true. My writing was awful for a very, very, very long time. Um, and I desperately aped certain styles. One very early on was Hunter S. Thompson, um, which I think it, he had a very seductive voice for a lot of young men. Um, and I, I think 
in time, I regarded him as a desperately overrated writer who kind of wrote nothing of value after Nixon left the White House. Um, but he had such an electrifying and very distinct and profane and exciting style. But the risk of emulating Hunter S. Thompson is extraordinarily high. And there's a lot of pathetic emulations of Hunter S. Thompson. And not that I would wish to, uh, you know, I've massively revived my, my judgment of Hunter S. Thompson. But here was one, Richard, I mean, there's a writers I'm a, like, I don't really touch anymore, but the kind of whimsical, naive Californian writer, Richard Brodigan, who was kind of a, a hero of um, the Bohemians of Laurel Canyon, um, was one, very, very different style. Um, I have Hemingway embarrassingly tattooed mm -hmm. on my body. I think his this <laughs> was, was something that I tried to emulate as well. Um, but they're all terribly embarrassing kind of confections um, or, or, or semi-plagiarisms. But at the same time, I think of that Mailer quote that at least it was evidence that I was very seriously engaged. You know, I wanted nothing more than to sound like these, these people. Um, and then the heroes were sort of revised and it wasn't a point of emulating a style, um, but just watching the craft and the insight and the work. And so writers like Joan Didion and, and especially Janet Malcolm who passed, well, they both passed away similar time, about a year ago, um, their intelligence meant an enormous amount to me. Uh, looking at your kind of post-uni career now, as you mentioned earlier, you spent some time as a teacher uh, and then later as a political staffer and speechwriter for the Labor Party in Perth and in Canberra. What do you reckon that did to help build your knowledge and skills as a writer and as a journalist? Um, th there's two things. One, I would say, if if anyone is in, in the market for any advice is to is to never stop writing. So whilst I, I wasn't employed as a journalist, um, but a speechwriter, I never stopped writing poems, plays, mm. um, fiction, short stories, TV pilots. Almost none of these things were published. Almost none of these things went anywhere, but I was still doing that privately. Um, but as to the influence or the... Um, the benefit of that work, I wanted in part, I mean, my, my interests are more diverse than politics, but I wanted to write on politics. And so working in Canberra during that time was, was immensely valuable. And it wasn't a coincidence that I became a columnist for the age not long after moving to Melbourne after Canberra. And early columns were about uh, speech, communications, um, how the media functions within politics. So that gave me a, a wonderful insight you know you work as a columnist you know fiction writer you tv pilots uh op-eds and of course journalistic writing you know is there a different headspace for each different role as a writer do you put on a different hat certainly for the fiction that sort of stands mm. out it's it's you know the the it's a it's a weird thing right the, the i published the speech right a couple of years ago it's a weird and profane political satire um I've always loved comedy and I've, I wanted to try that, but it was a great break from chronicling human depravity. Um, I'd done a lot of reporting on child sexual abuse, for instance, which was eventually kind of quite costly to me. Um, so the idea of inventing stuff, one, in fiction, and two, attempting comedy, seemed like a wonderful kind of relief, but also a great challenge. And it, and it turns out it wasn't all that much of a relief because I can tell you that 
trying to write funny, trying to write comedy is easily by far the hardest type of writing I've ever done. Um, and in terms of that headspace, it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to speak about because it's, it's just so abstract, but there is a certain, I don't know, a mindset or approach that you need to adopt going into the novel and you can get whiplash if you're moving between serious reporting um, or a column uh, and then moving into this space of, you know, I'm, I've created a very, very surreal um, world for the speechwriter. And so you can get whiplash. And I was always concerned that I just wouldn't be able to kind of pick it up, like that flair or that touch, um, that kind of whimsical detach. I, 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 I wondered about that, whether or not I needed to kind of quarantine the two forms of writing. Um, but that was a luxury <coughs> I couldn't afford. So I, I ploughed on. But I can tell you that the writing comedy, and I, I don't know if I was successful or not, um, incredibly, it's incredibly difficult. Much, much easier to be serious, Charlie. Yeah. Uh, I think every writer probably has a different setup. You know, some like to go out in nature, some lock themselves in a deep, dark room. What, what works best for you? Um, I don't have any rituals, really. Mm. There's music uh, in the evening. There's usually a drink. Um, I like to make it enjoyable. Um, I think, I mean, this might have helped kill her perhaps, but Patricia Highsmith, um, I think she said something like, I just, I want this to be as fun as possible. So I think her setup was uh, a bottle of scotch um, and she lay in bed. Um, she wanted to make it as fun as possible. Um, I am not that hedonistic, but I, I don't, you know, I think some get very monkish and protective about their beloved rituals and, and hermitude for their writing. I'm not so precious. I, I can work in a pub. Mm. Uh, looking at where you are now, associate editor of the Saturday paper, what attracted you to a publication like this? I was approached. I was working as an advisor to the chief commissioner of Victoria Police, so it was not, uh, not a likely recruitment ground, I guess, mm. um, for what was then a new paper. We only launched in, in 2014. Um, and so Eric Jensen, who's still editor-in-chief there, approached me and, you know, like this isn't sort of uh, insincere gratitude. It's, it's deeply sincere. I probably shouldn't have been employed. Like I just didn't have the, the record for it. Um, I was just working as an advisor to the, the Victoria's top police officer. Um, there wasn't all that much published work. But Eric, I mean, you'd have to ask Eric what he saw. Um, uh, he saw something, obviously, and I became um, a very grateful beneficiary of his unusual recruitment. Um, so, and, and you know, what I got from it was enormous license. We can write um, at length in the Saturday paper and especially in the monthly. Mm. Um, I've written pieces up to 10,000 words um, there. So, Given, given great license and length is a, is a wonderful feature of um, Schwartz publications, not just the Saturday paper. Mm, yeah. During your time at Saturday paper, you know, I know you've been uh, recognised and nominated in a number of different ways, you know, not to mention the 2019 Walkleys where your story on Rosie Batty was nominated, uh, was a finalist, I should say. What does recognition like that mean for you? Um, oh, well, I... <laughs> I I have a neurotic relationship to this stuff. I mean, I mm. think there are too many awards <laughs> for journalists. Yeah. Um, and I, 
apply, I'm applying more in earnest recently, in recent years, I'm embarrassed to admit, but frequently I wouldn't even apply. And the reason for that is I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to think that that's what I was pursuing, which was kind of deceitful because I kind of did, but I wanted to be seen as someone that was indifferent to uh, awards. So there's the kind of oscillating neuroses about that. Um, look, it's nice. The qu I won a quill uh, mm. last year from the Melbourne Press Club. I'd be lying to say that wasn't thrilling. Um, but I think that that kind of praise, there's, you know, there's a lot of self-regard in this industry, Charlie, and I, I think of praise as being like an opium. Um, and so it's something that is really, you know, that acknowledgement is really, really nice, but I'm also embarrassed of wanting it. And I never want to be in a place where I'm craving it or feel that I'm entitled to it. So... I don't know if that answers your question other than to reveal my uh, kind of ugly neuroses. <laughs> well, so there's those stories that, you know, uh, have won and nominated for awards. But is there a story or, you know, set of stories for you that stands out in your career as a particularly important one? Yeah, I guess, I guess there's a few. I, the Rosie Batty one I'm, I'm quite proud of. Um, I got to know Rosie reasonably well over the years. Um, I think for the very first issue of the Saturday paper, uh, my story was on Rosie Batty um, and the murder of her son, Luke. So we stayed in touch over the years. Um, I think, I mean, I'm, I have an ambivalence about all of this, Charlie, so I can think of like the quote-unquote worthy stories, but then I'm embarrassed about trying to milk that worthiness and also I did a lot of reporting on child sexual abuse and it became quite harmful mm. to me um, and so it seems weird to be proud about something that I was kind of too proud for a long time to realize the the damage it was doing to me and then being caught up in knots as well thinking it was kind of vulgar to be considering my own health when um, there are much more egregiously injured parties, i.e. the people I'm writing about, you know. So, um, but child sexual abuse, one, of, one large focus for many years was uh, immigration policy and especially those detained on Manus and Nauru. Um, there was extensive reporting on that. Um, one thing, I mean, I, I think as a writer, right, not a journo, and so, you know, I... I I'm proud of the stuff that I think is really well written. Um, one thing I think about a lot, and it was not, it was the most fun I've ever had with an article, was a profile of the Gallagher brothers, um, mm. Nolan Liam. Now, Oasis is a, a phenomenon that I've been thinking about on and off for 30 years, and so they've had the chance to write at length. And the monthly gave me 5,000 words for this, so I'm incredibly grateful for that license and that length. Um, but the writing in that sung, I think, um, and a very, very different piece was uh, a mixture of a column about responses to Grace Tan, um, which I mixed with a personal essay about childhood abuse. And I'm proud of that, not for the quote-unquote courage, I hate that word, um, but for the quality of the writing that I could, I could look at, report upon, describe... Uh, the modus operandi of an incestuous predator that's very difficult to write about, obviously. Mm. Um, and I'm not 
proud of the fact that I did it. I'm proud of how the precision and the quality of writing, um, if that doesn't sound vainglorious, perhaps it does, but I'm, I'm proud, of, proud of that. Hmm. Uh, I think these days, you know, with the advent of the internet, uh, news media, there's so much out there. Um, it's easy to publish something online. But what would you say makes the Saturday paper different? Yeah, sure. It's it's that time, like especially the um, sort of production times are different. So the Saturday paper is weekly, obviously. The monthly, funnily enough, is monthly. Um, <laughs> if you're given, you know, I, I, I think I probably make other journo friends sick when I tell them the time I might have on a story, which is always never enough. Where we have this kind of limitless appetite or need, hunger for more time. But what I have and others have is a wonderful luxury to properly think about stories. So it might just be a few days for the Saturday paper, but there are others churning out, you know, for dailies, they're churning out two or three stories a day. Um, I have a friend working in a community newspaper who's turning out three or four pieces a day. You, quality and thought is impossible under those conditions. Mm-hmm. It's incentivized to, to thwart any... I mean, you just end up regurgitating press releases at that point. And so that's anathema at Schwartz. And if, and if you're running for the monthly, I might have months to work on a story. Um, and so it needs to sing. But then you're getting into craft. Then it can be very well written, researched, reported, and structured. Um, and so, and there's really not many places. The monthly now exists um, as the sole glossy current affairs magazine in the country. Mm. Um, there's the Spectator, but it's it's really the British form with a, a small Australian supplement in it. Um, and you have the weekend editions inserts in the in the major papers. But in terms of a glossy current affair, it's it's the monthly. Um, and so that length and the time for writers, and you see the quality, you know, the, every year the Walkleys are stuffed with features from, from the monthly. Hmm. Looking at both of these publications, I think you're right in thinking they're probably a rare breed in Australia these days, especially in print. What do you see as the future of print journalism and publications like this? Oh, Charlie, prognostication is not, it's, it's a, you know, it's a wonderful way of embarrassing yourself. I don't know. It's, it's, you know, whenever this question is asked, there's always kind of a torrent of um, pessimism, um, which I kind of share, I guess. You know, when I hear of people writing three or four stories a day, which will have no shelf life, um, no quality, you know, I'm kind of despairing. Um, Schwartz is in is in good health. Um, I'm happy to say, um, but I'm not really seeing any other contenders. Or you know, w- will there be another monthly? You know, like mm. we lost the bulletin some some years ago. Now, um, it's it's a relatively barren landscape. I don't know if the quality of letters in Australia is in is in great health. Um, as to the future, I, d- I don't know. I'm just I'm kind of vaguely pessimistic. Mm. Uh, I think we'll ask our final two questions here. Uh, looking back on your whole career, reflections, you know, would you do anything differently? Um, I don't think so. And that's not to say everything's been perfect. It, it, it hasn't. Um, hmm. It's been shambolic at times, you know, like I've not known. I just don't plan, Charlie, really, you know. 
two, three, four years ahead. Um, I've been I've been pretty fortunate to be honest, um, and very very lucky to kind of you know now live what has been a lifetime passion really, um, but. I don't know. Is it appropriate to leave an advice for your audience, Charlie? Here, um, yeah, absolutely. One thing that I've never not done is to read and to write. Mm. And so, for anyone wanting to do that, they need to read voraciously, widely, passionately, and to write, and to write, and to write, and to write. And you will be rejected over and over and over and over again. I was for a decade, rejected, rejected, rejected. Um, I was always indignant about this, but looking back, it was entirely reasonable that these pieces be rejected because I was awful. Um, but that kind of persistence is, you have to have it. Um, I remember the first time I was published in the monthly, would have been probably the fourth piece I had given them. Uh, the previous three had been rejected. And I think probably, I mean, this might be terribly self-regarding. I think most people probably would have given up at the first or second rejection. And sending it the third time and then the fourth time did not come easily to me, temperamentally, at all. I winced. I hovered over the keyboard before sending it. Um, my anxiety was projected. You know, I imagined those on the receiving end rolling their eyes or grimacing, saying, won't this guy get the hint? We're not going to publish him. Um, so it didn't come easy, that persistence. It was sort of embarrassing to me, in fact. But I wanted to do nothing else, and so I, I, I kept at it. Um, and eventually it paid off. I think you might have just answered my next question, but uh, we'll ask it anyway because we do ask everyone here on the show. Hypothetically, your 15-year-old self is sitting in front of you. What advice are you giving 15-year-old Marty? Um... Good grief. Good grief. I think, I mean, a little more forgiveness. I was, well, I still, I still remain, but for different reasons, terribly anxious person. Um, a career really seemed formidably impossible. Like, it felt like I, I needed to find this special arcane key to open up this door. Um, and I, you know, worked in fast food and backpackers um, before taking this job in South Korea to teach kids, um, which was an adventure in itself. And the whole time was riddled with a sense of anxiety and, and not inferiority, I guess, but a, a certain shame, I think. A certain shame that I wasn't fulfilling my abilities, um, that I was this sort of this gypsy um, that couldn't ever quite do what he wanted to do. And I think I would say to myself, you know, like, relax more and, 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 and forgive yourself a little more. Standards are good, but what I applied to myself, I think, was so high that I was always in a state of, of failure and shame for not achieving them. Hmm. Can't say it any better than that. That about does it for How Did I Get Here Today. Student Edge members, do watch this space for special deals on subscriptions to the Saturday paper and the monthly. Uh, you can find us, student underscore edge, on Instagram, student edge, all one word, on TikTok. Search us up, student edge, or how did I get here, on YouTube, and head to studentedge.org. 
for all our articles, podcasts, deals, competitions, career tips, education advice, and much, much more. Marty, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, buddy.